0: Well, good morning and welcome, everyone, to a live Dharma Sunday for June 26, 2016. Koyo Kobose here. So very, very glad you joined us. You know, as I listened to that bell that we just heard, I, want, I was thinking about uh, all the different kind of bells and sounds there are in religious uh, implements um different religions, different denominations, uh, have their own kind of bells that that developed and um in Japanese Buddhism well I was thinking also there's you know there's the small bells that rest on a cushion and then you hit it with a little wooden striker and uh develop because of um Many people had home altars, and these were these little bells that were accompanying the home altar, in addition to uh, flower vases and candle holders. Um, according to need, sometimes there was a uh, service at cemeteries or other places where you had to well, walk around, and um, so they have portable. Bells bells have a little handle on it, and um, you can walk around and hit it, and it's the same type of uh, orin, they call it in Japanese, for those smaller bells. Then they have the larger ones that are stationary, but they're also on a cushion, and they're perhaps in the uh, onaijin, which is the inner altar area where the ministers sit uh, in the temple in the fondo or chapel. And the striker is usually a larger uh, leather-covered striker. And you, you hit this to signal different things, uh, start up a service, start up a uh, sutra, And it also, of course, not just functional in terms of uh, signaling uh, different parts of the service, but it serves the psychological function of uh, you listen to the sound and it kind of calms you down. You follow its sound. I remember my father said that Reverend Akigarasu, his teacher, he loved bells and he. Had a, uh, collection. I don't know, large collection of bells. And uh, then I, I know when we uh, in Japan, uh, the Japanese temples there, all, of all kind of denominations, they also have what they call a calling bell or kansho. These are the large bells that you might have seen. They're hanging outside. They they might have their own bell tower, or or you know uh, some of them. And of course, there are these. Uh, I think there's some persons, or maybe even families that specialize in uh, making these large bells. And I think some of them are are called some some of these bell makers are called national treasures of Japan and they get get famous reproducing uh, bells and um, (laughs) they have uh, you may have seen pictures or maybe even done it yourself if you visited Japan you see see these large bells and uh, you know they may weigh several tons and in order to strike these bells you have a a log, maybe a six-foot-long log, wooden log, that's suspended by uh, ropes. <laughs> and and um, you move it horizontally, and it's the end of the log strikes the bell and makes a big gong sound. And... the end of the log that hits the bell when, when everything's stationary maybe it's about a, a foot away from the bell. There's a foot of distance between the bell and the end of the log. And so what you do is you start to move that log horizontally you know, and you don't let it hit the bell yet. You get a little pendulum type of movement going back and forth and then as it goes back then you you can swing it back as far as it'll go, and then bang into the bell. And I'll never forget once uh, there was a when my father led uh, a group to Japan from Chicago uh, to visit, and one of the members, um, uh, one of his disciples. Uh, uh, Jim Morford, he he was in the group. And Jim, he's kind of a uh, not a very bo- boisterous person or expressive person. And so uh, he, he, they were visiting, and they were in front of this big bell uh, at a temple, and he kind of moved it back, and he bonged it as he tells the story and I could just visualize this and of course, my father's not a very demonstrative, very, uh, you know, boisterous, expressive person. But after Jim did this, he said, well, my father said, no, no, Jim, here's how you do it. Then Jim sort of just brought it back about a foot or so and hit the bell. He just wanted to hear the sound of the bell. Okay. And, uh, he wasn't familiar with uh, this technique as a tourist. And so my father got this bell, and as I said, he started to get that horizontal pendulum movement going, okay? And you kind of stop the forward movement just before, so that it doesn't hit the bell. And you move it backwards a little bit farther, and you come forward, and you get that movement going. And then on the desired backswing, He, my father, I guess uh, he he ran back about five, six, maybe ten feet to bring the horizontal log back as far as it could go. And And that log on its farthest backswing, Jim said, it just about pulled my father his feet off the ground, and then it starts to come down and my father runs with it, and <laughs> very must have been a very dramatic thing. You want to hit that thing as hard as you can, and it really makes the loudest sound Hundred and eight times um, on New Year's Eve, and so you hear these bells, you know, during the early evening. Uh, different rituals with bells. Um, and the main point that I'm sort of leading up to is, and I wrote a haiku about this, but the bell. You know, what's, what's, what's important about a bell is not just the metal bell itself, but this empty space inside the bell. Because without that empty space, the sound waves wouldn't vibrate and you know, no sound would be produced, the one that it is. Uh, so there's all kind of teachings or things you could talk about about the bell, uh, the way sound is produced, the vibrations. For a lot of times we talk about oh, that when you hear something, uh, a message teaching or something, you say, oh, I resonate to that message because, you know, resonate is, is a vibration. You know, sound is a vibration of the sound waves in the air. And in fact, if you've ever uh, experimented with tuning forks, you realize that if you uh, a similar vibration of the sound waves frequency stimulate a similar tuning fork that will that produce that's made to produce a sound at that same vibration. So if you do have a tuning fork and you hit it and it makes a sound, if there's another tuning fork nearby that has not been truck or anything, it's just it will pick up that vibration itself and start to vibrate and make the sound. Uh, if you you could amplify this by you know tuning fork, you hit it and then you put it, the bottom end say on a wooden table and you put another tuning fork down the bottom end on the wooden table that sound wave will be carried through the wood and, and the other one will start to vibrate. Um, so, now here's the thing. Supposing you got a big console bell, huge one. Maybe some kids pebbles at it. Bing, bing. Or supposing you you just kind of hit it with your fist a little bit. And then you can hear the, you know, there's all kinds of potential sounds in the bell the bell just sits silently and the bell will respond according to how it's hit if it's hit in this manner it'll produce this sound if it's hit by a big sound Um, so how you hit it is the crucial thing And the haiku that I I wrote uh, as a young man when I was in Japan and I think all young people they don't realize what their parents or the previous generation is like. All they know is their own strength and the vigor of their youth and they think they know everything and they don't know how their parents the metaphor is the parents are like a big silent bell, and a kid doesn't know how to ring that bell. So he gets just a, you know, puny sound. But when you learn how to hit that bell, how to access it, the kind of questions, the kind of attitude you have toward your parents, and you only get this as you get older through life experiences, then you realize that uh, There's a lot of potential there. They have a lot of life wisdom there. And if you know how to strike that parent bell, you will get a beautiful sound, rich sound. That's from their history. And uh, uh, so it all depends on, you know, how that bell is hit. And this metaphor, I think, will be used in a lot of different illustrations for different life teachings. I was thinking about this. I listened to the bell that started the service today. Well, I want to go on to introduce our guest to give us a Dharma glimpse today, William Toyo, who lives in Southern California, and he was part of our LM6 group. He's on Group 9 right now. And, in fact, he's been very active in the lay Minister, Brighton Lane Minister, um... Trailblazer Support Resource Group, president-elect, and he will be the president next year. Uh, so let's hear from William Toyo.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much. Um, before I start, um, Reverend Toyo just reminded me about uh, talking about the Bells. Is um, Right after my induction, of the LM6, uh, I've been... Uh, going up to each induction and trying to help out uh, any way I can and support the new inductees. And, and uh, on the way from the main house or in the spot down to the sanctuary, right, kind of in the middle of the trail that the procession goes down, there's a large, I think it's an oak tree, with this huge chime. And it was just, it is unbelievable. And I don't think I was asked to do this. I think I self-appointed myself to ring this chime during the procession going down, which I look forward to uh, doing um, each time I go up. And uh, so um, um, that's the really important part of uh Uh, uh, I think, of of the the ceremony. It just really adds to it. And um, so um, I, today, uh, I know a lot of people read the news, but we've been having this fire in Santa Barbara where I live. Actually, I live in Goleta, which is just a little suburb of of Santa Barbara, which is is only like four or five miles from downtown Santa Barbara. But we have this uh, large called the Serpa fire, which is now, uh, as of this morning, 93% contained. And pool containment is expected by Monday. It's burned over 7,000 acres. And um, it's got pretty close. You know, I mean, I, you know, close enough where we can see, see the fire on the ridges of the little mountain and valleys that surround, uh, um, surround us, which are on the east side. Uh, We live right on the coast, and it did actually um, burn uh, several of the state parks, state beach parks, which are just down uh, three or four miles from us uh, going north. But uh, luckily, there was no uh, uh, lives lost and very few structures lost because uh, the weather kind of changed and uh, fire started burning towards the more rural and upper canyons and all so that was good news and uh i don't know if you remember but i think a couple of years ago when i was doing uh another live armor glimpse uh we were living in san diego and there was another fire and that was almost right at our front door so uh i'm kind of getting you, know, you don't ever get used to them but um you always have to be aware of them um So, this past week, um, I guess after the last couple of weeks, instead of, uh, I was basically going to talk about um, Buddhism and how I became a Buddhist and all, but actually I'm going to dive into political Buddhism. Uh, There seems to be no way to avoid politics and having to read and listen and watch it on a daily basis especially in this election year. The presidential uh, election is really very disturbing, and what is also alarming is the character and intentions of this presidential election. I guess I'd probably describe myself as an engaged Buddhist. Uh, um, I think I've always kind of been a assault activist, nonviolent, uh, Back uh, going back to the, the civil rights movement in the 60s being raised in the South. So um, let's kind of examine our ballot box today. I think the concept of Engaged Buddhism, it seems to me, is predicated on the uh, idea of embracing a responsibility we all have to help each other. And I think for many of us, the effect of Buddhism is to heighten our awareness of the need to infuse our public policy choices with mindfulness and compassion. This path that we have set out Own as Buddhists is a task that begins at home with ourselves and with our minds. Um, So, what what, you know, what if anything is our role as a Buddhist? Uh, Buddhism and politics go back a long way in history. I read an article not long ago by Justin Rowan, and he was talking about in its earliest uh, phases in Japan's history. Buddhism established itself as a political entity, which grew to the rivalry of uh, the landowners and government as a unilateral force to be reckoned with. It, um, it influenced politics and the leadership at the highest level, um, it affected uh, uh, economically, politically, and eventually really on the battlefield. Buddhism developed really into a potent political body. Buddhism has had a history of being involved in politics and probably more so in in the early beginnings of it. Um, I became interested in Buddhism really not only because of a way of life, but because of the four double truths and eightfold path really spoke to me. And I think this plays um, an important role in our political judgment. As a Buddhist, I believe that moral behavior flows naturally from mastering one's ego and desires and cultivating loving kindness and compassion. The teaching of Buddhism expressed in the Four Noble Truths is that stress and the happiness of life is caused by our desires and ego clinging. And I would think that the path for letting go of the the, uh, desire and ego is the eightfold path. Ethical conduct through speech, action, livelihood, along with our mental discipline. I believe it's up to us to determine how to apply these principles to our lives. And this by far is not easy. I'm sure for many of us, it falls short, including myself. There is an inherent problem of trying to intermingle um, religion and politics. I think the basis of religion is morality, purity, faith, while for politics, it's power. When religion is used to pander political whims, it has to forego its high moral ideas. No political system can safeguard the happiness and prosperity of its community, the Sangha. No political system, no matter how ideal it may appear to be, can bring about peace and happiness as long as the people in the system are dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion. I found it very interesting in reading that more than 2,500 years ago, as we know, uh, we had the historical Buddha. Uh, The Buddha had given rules for good government. And in the Jataka, which I think was also known as Dasa Raha Dhamma, he had ten rules. And those rules are, be liberal and avoid selfishness. Maintain a high moral character. Be prepared to sacrifice one's own pleasure for the well-being of the subjects. Be honest and maintain absolute integrity. Be kind and gentle. Lead a simple life for the subjects to emulate. Be free from hatred of any kind. Exercise nonviolence. Practice patience. And respect public opinion to promote To promote peace and harmony, he also had uh, these rules that he thought uh, contribute to the behavior of the rulers, the presidents, the kings, etc. And he advised that a good ruler should act impartially and should not be biased and discriminate between a particular group of subjects against another. A good ruler should not harbor any form of hatred against his uh, subjects. A good ruler should show no fear whatsoever in the enforcement of law if it's justifiable. A good ruler must possess a clear understanding of the law to be enforced. It should not be enforced just because the ruler has the authority to enforce the law. It must be done in a reasonable manner and with common sense. Maybe this should be tweeted to some of our, potential, our presidential candidates. It might be a good lesson. However, this being said does not mean that Buddhism cannot and should not get involved in the political process, which is a social reality. Getting involved in the daily living activities of one's community is what I call power sangha. Democracy begins with you and me. The vote is not only a right, but a full responsibility as well. It is civic involvement that demands serious thoughts into every single element of the process. Being a part of democracy takes mindfulness and awareness of one's immediate surroundings and prescribes engaging in action. A vision process takes time and takes the entire Buddha, Sangha, and community to make it happen. It's rarely for immediate gratification, involvement, and diligence reap success loving kindness and compassion is contagious that i might add it is a, it is this proactive and engaged buddhist life that makes our country truly great there is no doubt that buddhism has an enormous capacity to assist humanity meet the, the political changes of today through its non-dogmatic approach its belief in science its understanding and relationships, its commitment to a life based on the middle way involving morality, meditation, and wisdom, its support of equality, and its belief in peace and dialogue between people and their religions. When the Buddha addressed some of his 60 disciples in Deer Park, they were told to go out and proclaim the Dharma, that is, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, and excellent in the end. But he also said something that really struck home with me. He said, There are beings with little dust in their eyes who will be lost through not hearing the Dharma. There are beings who will understand the Dharma. Well, we can see that we have a lot of politicians with a little dust in their eyes that could benefit from hearing the Dharma. I believe we'd be all pleased to see all of our policymakers become more acquainted with the Buddhist principles and practices. I, for one, would like to see the Dharma practice proliferate as widely as possible, and I'd be willing to take my chances with the political outcome. There are a couple of events that have taken place this week that I'd like to also mention. first was in the United States House of Representatives the sit-in led by Republican John Lewis who I happened to march with in Selma during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. And during the sitting on the floor, he was uh, quoted as saying, we have long been too quiet for too long. Also joining uh, in was Representative Hank, uh, Hank Johnson, who is one of the only two Buddhists, the other being Hawaii's Maisie Hiroto, who served in the United States Congress, who served in the United States Congress. Hirono was uh, raised in the jodo Sen tradition, and she, along with being the first Buddhist in the Senate, she's the first Asian American female senator and the first to have been born in Japan. Also, Democrat Tulsi Gabbard, who is the only Hindu ever to be elected to Congress, joined in the sit-in. The other event worth mentioning probably is the Dalai Lama addressed the state legislature here in Sacramento this past Wednesday, and also Bob, the Reverend Bob Oshida of the Buddhist Church of Sacramento, which is a jodo Shinshu temple, was invited to lead the prayer today. One message delivered by the Dalai Lama was, we may sometimes feel that we cannot do much as individuals, but humanity is made up of individuals. We can make a difference. As individuals, we can influence our own families, our families can influence our communities, and our communities can influence our nations. So what does this all mean? We need to follow our path, be aware of what is happening, be engaged, oneness. All of us together can make this world a safer and more compassionate place to live. We're all born of Buddha nature and we can make it happen. What brought this storm a glimpse about in the waking of each morning, kind of finding myself in a turbulent and unpredictable times, uh, just sometimes when you get up, you don't even want to turn the TV on or pick up the paper, uh, but we live in a time of, you know, great confusion and pain, and the answer is rather simple. I matter. My actions matter. My spiritual path matters. By putting all this together, it profoundly affects everyone around me. It made me realize that I need to focus more on empathy and compassion. It all begins with a cause. Your causes create the effects that shape your future and the future of others. Yes, you are enough. Yes, you matter. Yes, I'm very grateful for Bright Dong Sangha. I wish everyone a wonderful summer next time.
0: Thank you very much. You know, that's a very challenging, inspiring Dharma talk. And um, I was thinking about some people say war and hatred and conflict is part of human nature and history shows this and so forth Um, uh, but when you take a a broad perspective time wise and historically uh, I don't know the details I'm not a historical scholar but I think in India uh, when enlightened leadership maybe it was uh, King Asoka or, or you know um Employed meta type of you know loving kindness based on Buddhism and Eastern religions influence, and of course in the older days, politics uh, and religion were very close, intertwined. That during the time and because of his leadership, hundreds of years of societal peace, you know, prevailed. Um, I don't know the de- historical details of this, but my point is that it's possible. If, you know, um, don't become cynical about about these things, as many people are.
1: And the last thing I wanted to
0: mention is what flashed in my mind is that Abraham Maslow and the humanistic psychology movement, um, you know, said that when we talk about humanistic values, values that promote respect and tolerance for diversity for individuals uh, and the whole humanistic movement um, were people important than dogma and, you know, so forth. And he did a, he he took a sabbatical, Abraham Maddow took a sabbatical and he Wrote a book that ended up the title is and Management. and E-U, and then psyche. U uh, means good, you know. Uh, it's a it's a prefix that means good. So it says, uh, and his what he did was he studied corporations. When you think about the somebody says, well. In business, everything is cutthroat. Yeah, profits, the bottom line. Uh, uh, management will exploit the workers for greed. When you say, hey, hey, it's business, if you hear that phrase, it usually means something that's sort of anti humanistic. And so Maslow went to study existing businesses that employed enlightened leaders CEOs and he found that there was such companies it was possible to run a business based upon humanistic values and he and he wrote this up and it and it's in a book called you say management um, so the challenge is upon us and as a classic quote is you know if, well, if you want Peace, work for justice, um, and let there be peace, and let it begin with me. All of these aspects to keep us in the perspective of, and I love that phrase that I heard today, metta is is contagious. <laughs> you know, hey, there is a power in, in the sangha and how to function in a democratic society. Thank you very much. And that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going. You have a very beautiful day. Thank you.